0: We were trying to hire so many engineers in such a short amount of time that the sheer visceral pain, I use the word visceral pain of interviewing. You know, when you only have so many engineers to go around, how do you optimize their time between hiring activities versus writing code? It's a real conundrum. And so we were in the thick of that conundrum and I realized this is a huge opportunity
1: This is Dare to Disrupt, a podcast about Penn State alumni who are innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the stories behind their success. I'm your host, Ryan Newman, and on the show today is Mo Bende. Mo co-founded Carrot in 2014 to fix the process of interviewing software engineers. Carrot conducts highly predictive technical interviews for clients, helping companies to hire the engineers they need to create the future. Mo graduated from Penn State with honors in 2001 with a bachelor's in math and economics. Well, Mo, I'm so glad to welcome you to our podcast uh, here at Penn State, Dare to Disrupt. And what's amazing from my perspective is that we we are recording this podcast within days of you announcing that Carrot has become the latest unicorn which for those of our listeners who don't know, means that you've crossed over a billion dollars of market cap, which is extraordinary for any company, let alone for a company that's literally only been in existence for seven years. Thanks for making time.
0: Yeah, no, it's wonderful to be here. Chalk another one up to Penn State. Um, I feel very grateful for you know, building a company requires the support of friends, community, a great institution in school. Penn State is all of that. And so I'm just thrilled to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for making time. Um, We normally start the podcast on uh, background, where you grew up, but I want to do it a little different today because I have the privilege and pleasure of actually knowing you. And I want to start where I first met you, which was the first day of fall semester of senior year, which was 2000 uh, in the fall. And we were in an honors economics seminar, and, and you walked in, introduced yourself, and you had just spent the last year in London at the London School of Economics. So I'd like to start there because what was the only thing that was more impressive was the fact that you had spent a year at the London School of Economics was the fact that you actually grew up in Pittsburgh, which is an incredible connection. So how does a guy from Pittsburgh end up going to the London School of Economics and Penn State? I mean,
0: yeah, no let's let's start in Pittsburgh so. You know, Ryan, when I applied to colleges, you know, I didn't, I did all the, I guess, what you would claim to be the right things in high school, right? And I applied to 13 colleges and Penn State was the only one that took me, right? So I got 12 thin envelopes, one by one. I remember this is back, by the way, when we used to still receive envelopes and mail on where you went to college and not emails. And I just remember my dad kind of really coaching me and saying, doesn't matter, right? All it takes is one was his philosophy to me that it only takes one partner, one institution, one school to change your life. It's honestly still the hallmark of my leadership philosophy today. You know, you just need one yes. And Penn State for me, Ryan, I mean, it was that yes. And so I entered Penn State, I think both with a fire in the belly, because I think my dad had really coached me on okay great so you got into this amazing institution what are you now going to do with that but also with gratitude because i think penn state gave me a shot and so i really just that was the genesis of how i got to penn state you know economics was kind of a crazy thing right so i actually ended up applying to the straight medical program i don't actually don't know if you know this i ended up getting into the hershey medical program and i was going to do three years of undergrad four years right to med school I remember my medical school essay to Hershey saying, I actually don't want to be a doctor. I want to run the hospital, <laughs> which which I think both my parents found very entertaining. I took my MCAT and I had this realization that I want to go into business and I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to you know, lead and, and create things. And so the LSE, the London School of Economics, was actually a departure for me leaving pre-medical and sciences and exploring this new path into what eventually connected you and I, which was economics, but it was actually, it took literally leaving the country, going to London for a whole year to understand that there was this whole other world out there. And then, you know, fast forward, I I came back to Penn State and I'm so glad I did. There was an opportunity to stay at LSC, finish my degree there. And yet again, my dad called me and said, Hey, you've had your fun at LSC, but remember Penn State, this is your place. You need to go back and finish with excellence. And so, you know, I'm so happy I did because that senior year was truly, I mean, your your uh, podcast year is Dare to Disrupt. That senior year was disruptive for me in terms of being a personal, educational, just academic experience. So it, it was great.
1: I know from my perspective, seeing you, uh, come back from London School of Economics, having just met you, I could, you were just beaming with, uh, a cosmopolitan style to you that you don't typically find in state college. And, um, it was a really, you added a tremendous element of diversity and insight that, um, was really welcomed in our, in our economic seminar. We all benefited from your diverse interests.
0: I appreciate that. And also, I had exceptionally long hair. I don't know if you remember that. Now I've got my normal hairdo, but <laughs> I don't think I got a haircut my entire year in London. And so I showed up. Uh, but honestly, that, that final year was a really special year at Penn State to do our honors thesis, get to work with Professor Sostrom, which I believe he's now left Penn State, and David Shapiro, who's you know since retired. I just remember all of those folks because it's all about the people, right? It's, it, it was really a special group. Awesome. And now your parents, do they have a medical background? My mom does. My mom does. So it's kind of a funny thing. My dad really wanted to be a doctor, but his dad said, no, your your grades in math are really high. And so he basically was told to become an engineer, classic, right? My mom didn't want to be a doctor, actually wanted to be a mathematician or an artist. She's a painter. But in India back then, the payment for being a PhD in math just wasn't as high. So she was kind of pushing to being a doctor. So it's kind of really funny that I think both of my parents did, you know, very well in life, but they were really keen on me kind of, if you will, living the American dream and saying, okay, you do what you want to do with heart, with focus. It's the same things, you know, I'm passing on to my kids today. But uh, my mom came from a medical kind of background and she was the first professor of emergency room medicine in the country. She taught at Children's Hospital Pittsburgh. Um, and so it was actually really great. The experience there as I, as I was leaving the MCAT, which is the medical entrance exam. And I came out and I told my mom, man, that was a really hard test. She just looked at me and said, if you think that was hard, you should just go into business, go do something else, but not in medicine. Right. So I think my mom, uh, kind of really set me straight. And, uh, hence I went to the LSE for, for my junior year. Well, Mo, that's,
1: that's really incredible about your interactions with your mom and sort of almost sort of guiding you towards business. So after Penn State, I remember uh, you w- received one of the coveted and in those days, early uh, Gates fellowships. Uh, can you talk more about that fellowship and then where that took you sort of post Penn State?
2: Yeah,
0: it was an amazing experience. So Bill Gates Started a scholarship, kind of like the Rhodes Scholarship, but for Cambridge called the Gates Cambridge Scholarship. It was a full ride. I think there were 40 Americans who were selected in the uh, first year of it. I was in that class. And it was just honestly a life changing experience. First of all, I applied through the support of Penn State. My senior honors advisor, Dr. Sostrom, wrote my essay. And, you know, it was one of those things, Ryan, where you kind of have to jump to believe, right? I think initially, I did have a little bit of a hangup of, well, am I really going to get this? And I think one of my advisors at Penn State just told me, well, what's the worst thing that could happen that you get told no? So I was just like, well, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And so I just applied and I got a yes back to all it takes is one yes. And so I showed up at Cambridge and had a phenomenal, what ended up being a year and a half. I did my master's in economics. I built on my interest in game theory, which was an area of expertise that I started to develop at Penn State. And I started my first business there, right? So nine, I, I showed up in August of two thousand one. Nine eleven happened, I think, two days after showing up to England, right? So I remember, by the way, seeing the twin towers on my way out. Two days later, nine eleven happening, and me meeting, you know, my then co-founder David Haskell, and we then just started iterating on well, what can we do in the world to to, to make a difference? And so we ended up creating a. A magazine called Topic, and I ended up, uh, you know, getting my first taste of true entrepreneurship while I was at Cambridge. Bill Gates's dad, who is now passed, wonderful gentleman, gave us our first seed funding for the magazine. Um, I learned how to go sell truly door to door in England, um, and it was an incredible experience.
1: What was the um, some le- early lessons you had from actually running a business? I mean, that so that sounds like that would have been your first real business attempt. And um, just talk a little bit about what that was like in terms of bootstrapping the business, having very, while you sounds like you had some outside capital, I can't imagine it was very much. How did you make so much with so
0: little? Yeah, I think three things I learned. First, it starts with your customer and you got to start with the customer and work back, right? So we created this product. It was a, the idea of topic was that every one of our issues would focus on a different topic. We had you know, uh, everyone from Jose Ramos Horta, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, and write about his experiences in war. We had generals write about their experiences. So it starts with the customer and that we went door to door and try to figure out who would read this, how much would they pay for it, right? So I think I got my lesson early on that, and it's something I, I share with my son and my daughter now, that we're all a customer to somebody else. Everyone here is somebody else's customer, right? And I think once you appreciate that, It creates a level of empathy and kind of places you in the right way to think about the customer first and work back. I think the second thing I learned is, man, hiring's hard, right? And so ironically for Carrot and what motivated me to start this business. Now I had to hire hundreds of people uh, at my magazine business and just the selection process, the time on interviewing, it was no one's job. All the things that my new business is meant to solve. I mean, I was just seeing that first and foremost. And I think the third thing was the importance of people. People and culture is truly the bedrock of anything, right? And just having a very clear mission, clear goals, and a clear people infrastructure. So I think those three things of starting with the customer, hiring is hard, but it's super critical, and it's all about people. Honestly, I think that those are universal lessons that can apply to any business or not even business, Ryan, I think any leadership pursuit you kind of need those three things to to be working out and all the other things, a great product, a great go-to-market motion, great fundraising, great business strategy, they all come if you've got great people and customer empathy.
1: So what's so fascinating is after starting Topic, getting your taste of running a business, you did a really interesting pivot into um, sort of the opposite of the enterprise, so to speak, going from small to very big. Can you talk about that, that next step and, and what the motivations were behind it?
0: yeah that was a a big by the way there was a funny story where i was interning at microsoft and uh, we all the interns get invited to go to bill gates's house where he has corn dogs and (laughs) hamburgers and i think now hopefully veggie burgers or impossible burgers or take your pick right and so i'm eating a burger talking to him and he's he comes over to me and he's like, You know, you didn't have to come and intern at Microsoft just because you got the Gates Scholarship. And I'm like, No, Bill, I'm not here to intern to pay you back for some scholarship eight years ago, right? I'm here to learn. And so I think, honestly, Ryan, I think it's really important in plotting a career to have a mix of experiences from big to small to medium. And the sheer learning opportunity and networks that I developed at Microsoft were amazing. My board member, Sarah Clemens, was my manager at Microsoft. Many of our investors came through that network, my exposure to technology. And so I think for me, you know, I had been doing the small company thing and I just realized I needed a platform to learn and frankly, a platform to get educated on a different altitude of business, right? We were talking about partnerships and deals with the Chinese government, where I was sent to Beijing for two years and I helped launch Microsoft's $200 million venture fund directly with the Chinese government, starting businesses in Beijing. So there was just an altitude of world exposure that I actually think has helped me create an enterprise company today. I think if I had not been in the enterprise, knowing how to be in an enterprise, being a B2B entrepreneur would be really hard but now I understand how procurement works. I know how an office of a CFO works. I know how the, all the functions talk to each other. And so I, I think especially for entrepreneurs that want to disrupt in the enterprise, actually spending real time working in the enterprise is super critical.
1: So I have to ask a little bit because I know you and also because you're offering it in such a compelling, intriguing way. Did you feel a little bit like the fox in the hen house when you were there as an entrepreneur working in this big organization that, like many organizations, will have a lot of bureaucracy and rules? Or was, it, uh, was the Microsoft culture such that you felt a tremendous amount of freedom and liberation to do what you needed to do to be successful?
0: You know, Microsoft's evolved a lot in the last 10 years, especially with Satya coming on. Uh, if anyone hasn't read the book, Hit Refresh, it's got to be one of my favorite books. The fact that he took the same people and got them thinking in a new mindset just tells you everything, right? You don't have to swap out new people or whatever else. But I would say the Microsoft that I joined was actually highly entrepreneurial if you wanted it to be. And so the way I got to China was actually pitching my then manager, Charlie Songhurst, who is now an investor in Carrot as well, and saying, hey, I think there's a huge business opportunity. So I wrote a one-pager down, a two-pager, with a funding ask, a mission statement, everything an entrepreneur would do. And I took it to Charlie and said, hey, I'd like you to fund me. I think Charlie realized I had the drive and ambition to go there. And then I got teamed up with my then manager, Sarah Clemens, who, you know, thank, you know agreed to kind of manage me and, and be part of the whole operation. And, you know, I think it was really her insight saying, OK, you actually if you're going to go do this work, you need to physically be in China. You can't just do it from Redmond. And so it was really her push and her encouragement and guidance that got me got me out there. So my wife and I had just gotten married and Seema and I literally moved to Beijing in 2008. Um, And it was a crazy time, right? The financial crisis was happening in the world. Lehman Brothers was going under, but the Chinese economy was booming. I literally remember showing up to Beijing, Ryan, and just feeling, wow, this is truly the center of the world, right? Every time I would come back to Manhattan, it just felt small. And I remember getting to China and just realizing the sheer level of growth and even the name of your podcast, Dare to Disrupt, everyone was daring to to disrupt there. And so it was a phenomenal experience. So, And the short of it is, yeah, a little bit of fox in the hen house, but I got to find my own path. And that would be my encouragement to anyone listening to this podcast, which is ultimately at any company, if you think of it as a vessel, which was the analogy I think Charlie gave me at Microsoft, then you have to steward the vessel wherever you want to go, right? And so that was my whole take on Microsoft, which is how do I engage with this company as a platform to realize an entrepreneurial vision.
1: We've spent a lot of time talking about your experience in China and with a venture fund at Microsoft, but for all of the gamers out there and for for all of the the kids out there, we we can't leave the Microsoft discussion without at least a couple of of thoughts on Xbox. Can you talk about your experience working with Xbox?
0: Yeah. So I left the, the Chinese venture fund that we established after two years and I Joined actually Sarah and Xbox and was the ultimately became the head of product strategy there. It was a phenomenal experience, right? I think gaming and interactive entertainment, especially in today's post pandemic world, it's honestly a way people connect, especially in the, in the dreary 2020 stages when none of us could like leave our houses. It's a phenomenal way for people to connect. So I think my relationship to interactive entertainment as a medium to be connecting. You know, I think some people think of gaming as, oh, is it wasting time? Is it doing other things? I think of it just as a form of connection, right? So that's my relationship to gaming. Um, I think also Xbox was just a highly and continues to be a highly innovative part of the Microsoft enterprise. And so I do think, you know, now there are innovations out there like HoloLens and augmented reality that all came out of Xbox, right? And so it was actually a phenomenal lesson for me to see a large-scale platform like Microsoft have a highly entrepreneurial function like Xbox. You know, it's not that old of a division. I think if, you know the first Xbox came out. Well, now it's 2021, maybe 15 years ago, right? So Microsoft's been around for close to 50. And so if you think about it, it was truly a, a, an entrepreneurial venture that has now become a you know 10 to 15 billion dollar business.
2: Are you passionate about entrepreneurship? Do you want to see the economic vitality of communities across Pennsylvania improve? Right now, Penn State is offering a unique opportunity to double the impact
0: of philanthropic gifts that enhance economic development initiatives across the university.
2: Your support of these programs empowers students and community entrepreneurs with the tools and resources they need to bring their business ideas to the marketplace and
0: create jobs. For more information, contact Heather Winfield, Director of Strategic Initiatives
2: at hbw11.psu.edu.
1: So you're at Microsoft. You're obviously doing very well. You're getting a taste of entrepreneurialism in terms of your experiences. At what point do you decide you want to do something on your own or potentially with a partner in your case?
0: Yeah, I think three things. One, you know, back to Microsoft as a learning platform, I had learned a lot, and I'll continue to learn a lot. But I think the learning curve relative to the entrepreneurial (laughs) zest or desire, right? At some point, those curves cross and then you know where to be. And so that's where I had hit at Microsoft. Uh, Number two, I've just always loved hiring back to Topic Magazine. If you, if I trace all the jobs, even in between Topic Magazine, did some consulting, uh, was it a firm called Bates White, then Microsoft. Hiring has been like a through line through all of it, even at Xbox. I just love spending time thinking about how to attract talent to our division and how to adjust our interviewing processes. And so honestly, Ryan, I was spending just as much time innovating on hiring as I was just my day job, because ultimately, again, it comes back to if you have great people in a business, the rest of it tends to work out, right? And so just in terms of where I was spending my time and cycles. And third, I just saw an opportunity, right, back to the HoloLens We were trying to hire so many engineers in such a short amount of time that the sheer visceral pain, and I use the word visceral pain of interviewing, you know, when you only have so many engineers to go around, how do you optimize their time between hiring activities versus writing code? It's a real conundrum. And so we were in the thick of that conundrum, and I realized this is a huge opportunity. And my co-founder and I, Jeff, had known each other for quite a few years before that. We were looking to do something together. I would share with anyone on this podcast that when you've got the right combination of a values aligned co-founder paired with an idea, paired with a passion for solving a problem, well, then you got to start a business. If other things are supportive in there, right? My wife was very supportive. We were at a place in life, you know, where we could afford to do the startup and, you know, think of the startup as a two-way door. I always knew that if something had massively not worked out, then, you know, I would go back to Microsoft or something else. But it, it takes time to get to that place. You know, I wasn't there initially right out of Penn State. I had to kind of earn my way, save money, do all the things to establish our family, so that we could, you know, frankly, take the, the plunge to be, you know, an entrepreneur.
1: That's a really fascinating segue into this, this notion of this saying that that's the start that stops most people. And for many people, it's so hard to take that start. Now, you got started early. Topic Magazine, you know, in many cases, before you perhaps even really had a sense of, of what you were jumping into, you were already running your own business with respect to Topic. With respect to Carrot, take us through that. So you're, you're at Microsoft. You're seeing this need that's not being met. You've, you've obviously met your co-founder at this point. What were sort of the, some of the details related to the actual departure from Microsoft, starting the business, those early days?
0: My colleagues and partners at Microsoft were exceptionally helpful and just gracious. You know, when I started sharing, hey, I think I'm going to go do something in the hiring space. Pretty much everyone I met just said, Well, that seems pretty obvious because you love hiring, <laughs> right? And so there was nothing but encouragement. And I do think to start a company, you know, that validation and that social network and support, especially from your loved ones at home and the people you respect professionally, I mean, it's just so critical, right? And so I think number one, there was an outpouring of just support. Um, number two, again, I realized that entrepreneurship, especially at the stage I had gotten to, you know, I was kind of mid-30s at the time, I realized, okay, this is kind of a two-way door, right? Again, if I epically fail, and most ventures do, then there's something to go back to, or there's other things I can do to parlay that experience. And so I think once I realized that entrepreneurship is actually not that risky, the risky thing is not living the life that I want to live. And the risky thing is not working with the co-founder I want to work with, right? That's actually a much higher risk than not having done it. And so I think a lot of people think entrepreneurs just kind of jump off and don't think about risk. I think the best entrepreneurs are constantly managing risk and they just know which doors are two-way doors or which ways are, which ones are one-way doors. And I just knew kind of going forward that this was a two-way door. And number three, honestly, Ryan, I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. Right? I was just like, okay, this is crazy. How has someone not come along and made interviewing a job? <laughs> and at some point, it just becomes this consuming aspect of, well, why doesn't, you know, there's a real problem. Why hasn't someone come and done it? It sounds like such a simple idea to make interviewing a profession, but then to operationalize it, run into a service that's 24 seven. I mean, that's the complexity, but I just couldn't let go of that idea. And again, my co-founder Jeff happened to be at the kind of right time at right place in my life and me as well with him that it just made sense.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your co-founder, a little more about his background and how you two complement one another?
0: Yeah, Jeff. uh, So Jeff's actually got a really, his background also took him to China. Jeff uh, started his career. He had gotten the investment banking offer coming out of undergrad and said no and moved to China, I think with no job and just showed up in Shanghai in 2000, joined a startup that then went public on the NASDAQ. He was employee five. And so he learned a ton. He took a literally a locally created company and went all the way to IPO. He then, uh, I think, did a stint as a hedge fund analyst, realized he didn't want to work at a hedge fund, and ultimately became Linda Gates' chief of staff at the Gates Foundation. And what I love about Jeff is not only, A, do we have a deep sense of shared values, we're both very clear on our priorities in life that family and health come first, entrepreneurship comes after right and we're very firm and clear that doesn't work for all entrepreneurs you know some want to put their business over other things i don't do that and nor does jeff and so i think the alignment of how we organize our life and how we make decisions was very clear and you know we're just highly complementary right we you know i think in the early days jeff uh, initially wanted to save the us post office and thank god we didn't pursue that idea we we pursued carrot but just the his, like the vigor and the zeal just his innovation and creativity is off the charts. And so I think Jeff just has a really deep attention to detail, a really deep appreciation for the craft of quality, a really detailed appreciation for data, right? Frankly, all of those three things, which I do not have. (laughs) And so we basically realized, wow, we're kind of two piece in a pod here with highly complementary skills, but most importantly, with a shared sense of purpose and a purpose to want to help people get jobs and to help companies hire, right? And I think ultimately, even with this new unicorn announcement, I was chatting with him this morning about what does the next seven years look like? I think it's just going to be a seven years with purpose, right? And led through purpose and conviction that we now have a platform to make real change in the world.
1: So it sounds like you have a real division of of skills. Is there a division of roles, too, within the organization? How does that uh, translate to the way you run the business day to day?
0: Yeah, I focus now primarily as CEO of the company on fundraising, uh, organization hiring, setting strategy and structure. Um, You know, you set a mission, you then have to organize around that mission and go from there. But Jeff and I are very much partners. Jeff is focused really on driving the next generation of innovation and the next generation of data insights. He originated and partnered with a bunch of uh, folks at our company to create Brilliant Black Minds, which is our purpose commitment to helping more black engineers get into tech last year. You know, there's a constant stream. So it's a very clean and easy division. We're both board members uh, at at the highest levels, but as partners, You know we work together obviously on things like company strategy company culture company leadership uh, but in terms of you know when we partner with each other and i think this is really important with any co-founder relationship you got to know when you're speaking with your partner either as a friend as a co-founder as a board member or as an operator so jeff and i have four layers of relationship and i think we're very intentional and hey i'm speaking to you now as a friend i'm speaking to you now as a board member where we are you know operating together but when we speak about operations you know we just happen to have different focus areas and different roles in that but it's one of our four relationships and so I think just being very clear for you know anyone listening on this podcast that when you partner with someone just recognizing that every relationship has different parts to it and you build actually I think a stronger relationship when you can just be very clear on which which muscle you're exercising and I think Jeff and I have learned that art actually through one of our investors who advised us very closely on how to cultivate his name is Michael Ovitz. He started Creative Artist, Creative Artist Agency. And so Ovitz basically sat down with me and Jeff and just said, hey, you have to invest in your relationship and you're going to have multiple facets for what your relationship looks like. Acknowledge it and move forward.
1: Well, you've alluded to it, but uh, we'd love to hear and uh, you articulate, what is the problem precisely that Carrot is looking to solve and how are you solving it?
0: Every company is becoming a software company. I think Andreessen coined this many years ago. It is totally true. Therefore, every company needs to hire engineers. Interviewing engineers takes a lot of time and it's no one's job to be any good at it. And the fundamental problem is there's just simply not enough engineers to interview other engineers. Currently, companies are investing, Ryan, nearly $60 billion a year of engineering time on interviewing, and it's still not enough. And so fundamentally, the problem is here's a business process that takes a massive amount of time that is still yielding results that can be biased, not consistent, not advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and is frankly not moving fast enough to be competitive in a world that's just moving really fast. And so where Carrot comes in as the interviewing cloud is we've effectively made interviewing a job and we conduct interviews for companies. We've combined a global network of engineers who we've onboarded to be professional interviewers. And we conduct all of the technical interviews now for a wide range of companies ranging from a, you know, Coinbase and Robinhood through to a Bank of America and American Express in the financial side or, you know, a Tesco or a Wayfair on the e-commerce and retail sides. And
1: so you have employees of Carrot that are actually professional interviewers. So that's your comment before you alluded to of making interviewing a profession. And you're now serving companies in this way, providing this service. Can you talk about, you mentioned uh, cloud interviewing. Can you explain what that is?
0: Yeah, so the, the interviewers, Ryan, we call them interview engineers, they're contractors. Think of them as engineers who are building interviewing businesses on Carrot's cloud. Cloud interviewing is literally the provisioning of an interview 24-7 on-demand in an elastic service. So just like you would go to Amazon Web Services to say, hey, I want to be able to store my data um, and make sure it's accessible, safe, secure, and it's 24-7 always on, companies come to us saying, I need to be able to interview engineers around the clock anytime in a consistent, standardized, predictive, fair, and repeatable way. That's what we offer. And so the analogy to the cloud is it really evokes a sense of an always on service, which is ultimately what we provide, right? So when a company wants to hire, I don't know, a thousand engineers, they provision the interviewing cloud to say, great, to hire those thousand engineers, we're going to need always on interviewing to help us understand who to hire and to get to the candidates faster than anybody else.
1: And so the product that you're providing Wayfair, or these other businesses you mentioned, is precisely delivered in what format or or way?
0: So let's suppose Wayfair will send us a candidate. Uh, Let's suppose you are the candidate, Brian. You would then get matched with an interview engineer on Carrot's platform, and that interview engineer would conduct a live 60 to 75 minute interview of you. Depending on the role, it could be a front end interview, a machine learning interview, data science interview, and it's an assessment of your skills that we have developed as Carrot. And then we then give that result back to Wayfair and say, based on the results of the Carrot interview, what should you do next? Should you move Ryan to the onsite loop? You know, Should you say, thank you, but no thank you, you're not ready yet. And so where we play that role, Ryan, is when a company like Wayfair is hiring, we're ultimately the company that can go talk to the thousands of engineers and help them understand who the subset is to hire the benefit for the candidate is we're on all the time. So 60% of candidates, Ryan, are choosing to interview on nights and weekends. So you can interview on a Sunday or a Saturday. 20% of candidates take us up on a redo. So you don't feel like you did well on the first interview, all good. You get a new interviewer and new set of questions. When does that happen <laughs> in a normal interview? Right. And so candidates love it for the flexibility and the ability to get a redo. But we're now pushing the envelope, uh, and, I, and I can share in a bit where we think the interview is going. But, you know, the candidate experience around interviews, the status quo is just honestly not that good. When was the last time, Ryan, that you've been in an interview that you've actually enjoyed? <laughs> right? Probably a while. And so I think I think that there's a real opportunity for a company like Carrot to come in and both disrupt the experience for companies and candidates alike.
1: Well, I can't leave that compelling offer hanging. Can you? I'm intrigued. Can you share with me where you think interview is going?
0: Yeah. So I think, again, today, candidates are getting flexible interviews with the ability to have second chances. Where the interview is going is it's going to go from being a transactional thing that you have to do into something that gives the candidate value back. If you don't get the job, candidates can get feedback from their interviews. We've actually been giving feedback to all of the students going through our Brilliant Black Minds program and seeing that there's a demonstrable lift in performance once you get feedback, but Ryan, only 3% of candidates in America are getting feedback today. We're going to change that, right? And so part one is you don't get the job or you do get the job. What can carrot give you back as a candidate to understand your performance? I think the second thing that's going to happen with the interview is it's going to go from being a point in time, look at somebody to a longitudinal kind of time horizon of where have we, where has this person grown? So I'll give you an example, Ryan. We were looking at the data last week and we realized, you know, there was a candidate that we've interviewed 10 times for 10 different companies across the last five years. So we've literally seen the same person since 2016 growing in their career and A normal interview would just say, well, here's what this person knows right now. Whereas with Carrot, we can actually say, this person's grown so much since 2016 to 2021. Imagine where they're going to be in 2025, right? So I think the interview is going to be looking at potential and learning and growth. The final thing is interviews are going to be enjoyable and they're actually going to be entertaining, right, for candidates. We've seen through our data that that when interview engineers tell either developer-friendly jokes or bring levity to the interview, the candidate ratings of the interview skyrockets and candidates are just happier. And so we're actually currently working with two professors who wrote the book Humor Seriously, Jennifer Aker and uh, Naomi Begdonis, they're professors at the Stanford uh, School of Business. They're working with us on how to inject humor into the interview. And so we are literally going to make a science out of making the interview not this dreaded thing that you have to do, right? but actually an experience that as a candidate, you say, okay, great. I actually, I do want to do that interview because it's going to be, you know, it's going to help me. It's going to illustrate my potential and I'm going to get feedback one way or the other. And so I think Ryan, that is where the interview is going.
1: It's pretty incredible. Uh, No, no doubt you've had investors knocking at your door for some time now, given the compelling nature of the business. Can you talk about your experiences raising capital Uh, the timing as to when you chose to do it and then what that experience has been like for you and the company?
0: Yeah, it evolves over time, right? So in our earliest seed stage, right? So the seed stage is usually your first or, you know, now there's all these other tranches, angel rounds and other things. But, you know, back to Microsoft, it was my boss, Charlie, who actually introduced us to 8BC, uh, which is uh, Drew Edding and, and Joe Lonsdale's firm. And 8BC, they just got, they just got a, it was in one meeting and they, they were like, yeah, interviewing needs to be a job. How has someone not come along and done this? Right. And so they did some of their diligence, but you know, we then raised capital. Right. And we'd already, I think at that point. Gotten to a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue. We'd already had customers like into it. And so, you know, I'd say one of the things we did is we went out before raising money and actually validated that there was a market need. And not all entrepreneurs do that, but that's the course that Jeff and I took. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, 8VC has been an incredible partner. When we got to the what's called the Series A, that's a higher bar. You know, you need to prove, OK, great. You know, certain revenue metrics, milestones, product market fit. And, you know, it's harder sometimes as an entrepreneur to find, you know, now it's a little easier, but it's harder, You know, it was harder to find the right partner. But we got fortunate to get teamed up with a gentleman named Parker Burrell, who works at Norwest Venture Partners. And Parker had actually formerly been the VP of product at LinkedIn. So he immediately got it as well because he said, wow, never before have I seen a service that generates so much data on engineers and engineering talent and companies, and you're getting paid to create that data. And so I think Parker just immediately understood the value proposition of our business. And by the time we got to Tiger. Scott Schleifer, who led our last two rounds, uh, both this recent one and our Series B, you know, Scott and Tiger have done deals in LinkedIn, Glassdoor, Workday, et cetera. They just really understand our space. So I think the through line through all of that, Ryan, is we found partners like Drew, Parker, and Scott who actually really understood our business in a deep way. They've either been around the town space, been in recruiting. And they understood that a human plus tech solution would be the winning model. It's not obvious, right, because we're not another crypto company or another, I don't know, stock like, you know, fintech, right, to go off and say, oh, wow, this company has real humans solving an actual problem. But I think the investors we have found immediately understood that in this space, that that is the winning uh, winning approach to combine the best of people with the best of tech.
1: So now that you've uh, raised this capital, more importantly, now that your business has been validated to the point that you've raised capital to valuation in excess of a billion dollars, making you a unicorn, what's on the horizon for Carrot? I think it's
0: important to, we, one of our values at Carrot is to celebrate. So we absolutely celebrated and we are celebrating and we are thankful for our partners. I don't agree with, <laughs> there's a many entrepreneurs who are like, don't celebrate, get back to work, It's just getting started. I, that's just not my philosophy. My philosophy is when good things happen, Running a company is like being an athlete. When someone wins a race, you got to celebrate, right? So number one is, yes, are we happy and proud of where we got to? Absolutely. Are we hungry for the future? You got to believe it. You know, better believe it, right? So I think when we think about the future, really, this is just a platform and we're just getting started. Number one, we're going to invest in scaling adoption of the interviewing cloud globally, right? So for example, Europe is our fastest growth market right now. We're planning to grow significantly in London, Ireland, France, et cetera. Number two, we're going to make a lot of investments into our core product, both around data science and the interview itself. So those things I was sharing earlier, Ryan, around introducing humor into the interview, looking at potential, looking at feedback. They're all going to need capital investment. And frankly, number finally, number three is we're going to really invest in our people and our purpose, right? So investing in programs and infrastructure, back to what I learned at topic, it's all about people, right? So how do we make carrot a place where our own people come to unlock opportunity, that it's the best employer around, that people want to come work here? That's where it all starts. And so that's the way I think about it. We're going to scale globally, invest in our core product, and most importantly, invest in our people and our purpose.
1: Well, thank you, Mo, for discussing your entrepreneurial journey with me. I'd now like to hand things over to a current Penn State student who is in the midst of his own entrepreneurial journey and is very active within the Penn State entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, Babune Owusu is a senior at Penn State studying electrical engineering with an entrepreneurship minor, and his startup, Be Your Best Clothing, a clothing brand made to inspire others to look within themselves to make use of their maximum potential. And Babune, I'd like now like to hand things over to you.
2: Hey, Babune, how are you? I'm doing very well. It's great to hear from you. Honestly, listening to you speak has been very, um, very inspirational. And very, um, it has me in a state where I'm able to reflect and like think about like what am I doing now and how can I use what you're saying to move forward in terms of what i'm what i'm doing
0: thank you and it sounds like you're already on your way with starting a business amazing truly a dorm room business from what i can tell that's amazing
2: yeah i don't know if you can see i have a bunch of boxes up there actually with inventory but um very much so a dorm room business (laughs) yeah
0: you're telling me so you're living with your product literally i love that yes it's great
2: so the first question i'd like to ask you is um with going through school, going to London school, what was your process in finding the balance between ambition and responsibilities? Because for me personally, I remember one month, last February, when I was trying to get out orders um, with Zoom classes and whatnot, I was finding it difficult to sort of get my product out and pay attention to class at the same time, trying to do it all in a timely manner. And my mom actually told me I might have to step back to focus more on school. So what was your process in finding that balance? It's
0: a great question. I would say there's no point doing things 50-50 in life. It's better to do one thing and do it really well. So I think it's just about timing and phasing, right? So for me, I, didn't, I wasn't starting a business while I was in college, right? Um, I graduated, went to Cambridge. The English kind of academic system is different, Babune, where you're not getting tested every two weeks or how I can't remember how often we were having tests and homework, right? There's literally an end of year test. It was much more in some ways conducive to starting a company. And so I got topic going while I was there and I was able to balance both. Um, I could see how that would be a lot harder. Uh, I think, you know, what I would say is just being clear on priorities, right? And so maybe there's a specific milestone in the business that you or others would want to hit. And Being realistic about that milestone, I think sometimes people don't visualize, right? I've been learning a lot about visualization as a technique. I think visualizing what success looks like. So in in your case, it might be, okay, well, what does success at the end of the semester look like, both for your business and for school? Then asking yourself and whoever else is listening, is that possible to have both outcomes? And if so, then working back, right? So I think working back from a clear outcome will make... Balancing responsibility and ambition, no longer a trade-off, but just one and the same. I think when people run hard at things without a clear goal of where they're running to, that's where they burn out. But actually just declaring an end state and saying, is that possible? And picking what I'd say a stretch goal, but a goal that's realistic is really important. And it's the same in business today, right? When we set board targets or growth targets, we always push ourselves a little bit. But we know we have a real shot at hitting that goal. There's no point picking goals that are just so wildly impossible that you'll always fail. But there's also no point in picking goals where you're always gonna hit 100% of them every
2: quarter in and out. You know, Then you're just not trying hard enough. So it's actually interesting that you say that because it kind of leads to my next question. Do you find that you often lean more towards a point of confidence or courage when taking on projects? And can you give an example? Hmm. That's a good question.
0: I would say that technique is not to, especially as, as I've grown in my career, it's not to just have one method or another, it's to know which method to employ for what situation, right? So I do think some situations require courage because, well, you probably have nothing to be confident about or no knowledge to go after, right? So to me, when I was raising that first round of capital, I led with courage because Frankly, we didn't fully have a form business, but in closing this round with Tiger right now, I led with confidence because we have a business, we have real customers that have real value and whether one investor wants it or not, that's not going to change what's most important for me, which is my customers and my people, right? And so I think you have to know which techniques, I think I'd add a couple others. There's empathy and then there's listening. And then there's just knowing when you made a mistake and like being ready to like say, yeah, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. Right. And is that a two way door mistake or a one way door mistake? And just knowing. And so I'd say, Babune,
2: I think I've, I've employed both confidence and courage. It just depends on the situation. That's very interesting. I know that personally in my uh, school endeavors, um, I often find that like, so I'm majoring in electrical engineering, but my minor is in entrepreneurship. So what I find that is like for my major classes, they don't really encourage you to necessarily fail unless it's like you're doing homework by yourself, but you can't necessarily fail as much when it comes to exams, homework, and all that other things. But like in entrepreneurship, one of my first assignments was to go out and fail. We're supposed to go out around town and just ask someone if we could do something. And if they say no, then go find someone else to try and ask them to do that. So
0: Babune, that reminds me. So I was at the uh, Goldman Sachs, I think, Builders and Innovators Conference last year and got to meet Chris Kardashian, who uh, is the mother of Kim Kardashian. And she told me this line that I still use today, which is, if someone tells you no, you're just talking to the wrong somebody. And right, <laughs> I still use that today to motivate my sales force. I'm like, okay, oh, somebody told you no, well, go talk to somebody else. Right. And so I think I love that they did that. And I love the yin and yang of your experiences because it's important to not be reckless. Entrepreneurship, back to risk management, I think some people have this fascination that entrepreneurship is about massive risk-taking and Actually, it's not. It's about thoughtful understanding of people and customers to create new things. And so I love the fact that you actually have a little bit of a dichotomy going on there with your main, main and major courses. That'll serve you and others who pursue that well. Only having one way of doing things, only not failing or only failing, is a recipe for not winning.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so with my last question of being a college student right now, Um, And since you also went to Penn State, what lesson or resources did you find most valuable to you as a student at Penn State that contributed to your achievements and success that you have today? So honestly, Babune, I showed up just like the Gates
0: Scholarship. Uh, I was the first Gates Scholar of class. I was also like Ryan, the first Schreier Honors College class. And so I think I had that entrepreneurial side from the get go. I literally showed up on campus, man with a mission saying, "Okay, what funds do these folks have and what can I do with this capital? (laughs) Um, Schreyer. God bless him, had just put, I think, with his wife, $30 million in. And so I showed up with a little bit of a mission. So the first summer, Schreier paid for my trip to Mexico to go learn and volunteer down there. The next summer, they paid for my internship at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The next summer after that, they paid for me to go to London School of Economics and do all my trips. And then, you know, I basically just kind of came to Penn State saying, okay, this school just got funded. And so I think that entrepreneurial streak started early on with me where I didn't wait for Schreier to come to me. I just showed up at the office and just started knocking on doors and saying, all right, I'm here. What are y'all, what are y'all doing? Right? And so they just said, hey, our agenda is about global learning and global growth and entrepreneurship. I'm, and I just said, well, I want some of that, right? And so here we are. And so that's, you know, I think Penn State actually taught me you don't wait for things to come for you. You go get it, you know? And so that's, um, that's still my life philosophy today. Even after all this fancy stuff and funding and whatever else, like, I don't, I'm not going to wait for anything. I'm impatient. So I just go get things, go talk to the customers, go hire the people. I'm spending half my day today hiring. You don't wait for people to come join your business. You have to go talk to them and go recruit them and convince them to join you. So that's kind of, that's the philosophy of Bapuna.
2: Well, for my business right now, currently, I'm the only one. It's just me. So I know you do a lot of hiring. So I'm wondering, um, when you do the hiring, when do you make the point from switching, like, hands off, like, instead of actually like being so into the work? Like, for me personally, with manufacturing, when do you make that point of saying, all right, now I'm just going to step back, trust them to do it, and then I can then manage and see the vision through all the way? Ah, oh,
0: but Bune, that's a good question. Well, first of all, Boone, I thought I was going to try to sign you up as a customer right now. You you just started going to um, hiring a lot a lot of people, and I'm like, oh, if you're hiring, I've got a team that could help you. So <laughs> always be selling, right? I don't care where you are, you always rep your product, you know, as as a founder and whatever role you have to always be doing that. Um, I would say you you're asking one of the most quintessential. Literally, we just had our customer summit on Thursday, and I asked Ross Mason, the founder of MuleSoft, who's a investor in Carrot literally the same question. I think you're going to hear a hundred things from a hundred people, Babunet. Uh, I think some founders will say, oh, it's all about leverage and you want to get out of hiring. Others, you know, the Workday CEO, Anil Bunsari, I think he he interviewed every single person at Workday with his co-founder up until person 1000. Mulesoft was investing 30% of executive time into hiring. Our personal philosophy is we are a hiring company, right? And so Jeff and I and our executive team do spend a lot of time on hiring. That said, we're also a company about leverage, right? If you think about our business, we are professional interviewers. And so there is a leverage aspect and a level of professional trust that comes. And so I think every founder has to go a little bit on their own journey. I would say at the stage you are, if there are other folks listening to this podcast who are just getting a business off the ground, I mean, your first 20 to 30 hires, you got to be all over that. You got to go find them, recruit them, convince them, manage them, onboard them. You, you can't, you know, not do that yourself. But afterwards, um, I do think finding partners who just know how to hire well, right? So I've got, you know, a, a VP of people now, Lily, and a set of recruiters that frankly just know what they're doing more than me, right? So that's kind of your job as a founder, which is to go bring on people who know more about something than you do yourself. Your job is not to be the subject matter expert in everything, it's to go recruit great executives and talent and people and just let them flourish.
2: I'll definitely keep that in mind. Thank
0: you so much. Congratulations as well, by the way, for starting a business out of literally your dorm. It's very impressive and I wish you the best. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks, Babune.
1: That was Mo Bende, founder of Carrot, one of the newest companies to obtain the noteworthy status of Unicorn. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Dare to Disrupt wherever you listen to podcasts. And look out for the next episode in November. Thanks for listening.